Let me open up our time together in a word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for um, how you're being honored here. I pray that you will give us um, all a um, deep reminder of the gospel today, of who you are, who we are in you. And Lord, I just pray that as we leave today that you will be lifted up and glorified and your heart's desire of the nations to know you, each person to know you will be um, embedded in us and we will leave with a greater sense of knowing you. Thank you, Father, for all that you're doing and we just praise you right now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm gonna share with you some things that um, women should know before going to the field, but first I'm gonna give you a little bit of my own story. I was a freshman in college and a new believer. I just became a believer right after high school, and so I went to a Christian college where I met Brooks. But it was also for the first time um, sitting in chapel that I'd ever heard of unreached language groups. And um, as a new believer, I was very on fire for the Lord. I, um, you couldn't get around me within a 10-foot radius without hearing the gospel, probably to the detriment of my testimony at times. So, but when I first heard about unreached language groups, I thought, of course, they're condemned. They're dying and going to hell because they don't know Christ. So that was kind of a no-brainer. It wasn't like a... Um, it was kind of an aha moment, but it wasn't a big spiritual awakening or anything like that. It just made sense to me. So um, when I was sitting in that chapel hearing about unreached people groups, I thought, Lord, if this is what you want me to do, I can do that for you. But I didn't know how that was going to work out. I was still planning on getting my degree. I have a degree in counseling psychology. Um, I wasn't researching agencies. I wasn't looking towards which fields to go to or praying or thinking about that. I just was thinking, yeah, okay, if this is what you want, you're going to make that clear. So um, I continued with my plan and finished college. Um, as I mentioned, Brooks and I, well, he mentioned as well, but we met there, and we got married right after I graduated. Um, and we didn't have a burning drive to get to the field. It was more of an understanding that this was something that was really important to our God. And just through reading his word, and growing in our faith, it really continued to become more important to us as well. I would say it even became a conviction. There wasn't any magical call. Um, like I mentioned, that time in chapel, that was kind of my aha moment, but it wasn't like a, okay, I'm going, let's go right now kind of thing. It was just, oh yeah, that makes sense, like I said. So um, yeah, I hadn't heard any mystical stirrings, as Brooks has said before, we had, didn't come out you know, and see the, go swimming in the ocean and see Papua New Guinea written in the sand or anything like that. But it was through God's word and his provision that he just continued to confirm that we should go. Um, he gave Brooks a really great job. I had college debt a lot, and he provided through this job, through bonuses and raises and all these things, um, that we were able to quickly get out of debt um, almost miraculously and getting out from underneath those student loans. And at that point, there kind of just seemed to be a fork in the road. Um, we could have very easily stayed there in San Diego. We love San Diego. Um, we have a great church, um, great friends. Um, we were involved in ministry. Um, but it seemed like we were facing that, okay, we could stay here and do this and be faithful, or we can go. And just the way that the Lord had continued to remind us of his faithfulness and what he wanted um, 
the nations to know and to understand him, we were able to then just step out in faith and trust him with what he wanted us to do. So um, we did pray, Lord, if this is not what you will for us, please shut this door. And he really never did, <laughs> all the way to Papua New Guinea, then all the way to where we are right here in Radius. But um, in January 2001, we went through two years of training. And in October 2003, we headed to the field of Papua New Guinea with our then three-year-old son. After nine months of completing orientation and learning the language of the culture, of the country, we were given a list of names of tribes that had been asking for missionaries for seven years or more. To make a long story short, we ended up in a tribal group called the MBMB. So Papua New Guinea is an open country. Um, you, do, you can go in under a missionary visa. Um, that's not an issue. So when, they, when I say they've been asking for missionaries, they're really asking for what missionaries bring, medicine, prestige in the area. Um, they'd seen other er, um, places where the gospel had been and, you know, things changed for good. And so that's what they really wanted. They weren't asking for the gospel. Um, but we learned their language after we moved in. We lived among them and were adopted into their clans. We built an airstrip. We developed an orthography. Um, we taught them how to read the, write their own language. Then with translated scriptures from the Old and New Testament, we began teaching them from creation all the way through to Christ. And in April 2008, a baby church was born. We stayed several more years teaching them, translating scriptures for them, and discipling them. They now have their own elders and deacons, the complete New Testament, and are feeding themselves through God's word and discipling new believers in the church. So Brooks was just back there in March, um, got to see them, very encouraging to see up-and-coming um, elders training new leaders, and um, it's just a beautiful thing. We always tell people we have two kids. We have our son, one son, that the Lord gave us, Bo, and then we have the Emmy Church. <laughs> so, um, Now, I don't know where you guys are at today. I don't know where you're at in your journey, but I'm assuming since you are here, you're interested in missions. Um, but if you are personally considering taking the gospel to an unreached language group, I want to share with you five things that I would go back and tell myself when I was <laughs> in college. Um, so the first thing I want to share with you is that this will be the hardest thing that you'll ever do. Taking the gospel to an unreached people group and planning a church is not for those who are wanting adventure. It's not for those who are looking to serve God while putting a stamp in their passport. I have lost count of the amount of people who told me, oh, you must like adventure. <laughs> and every time, I seriously want to laugh. <laughs> I love shopping. I love getting my hair done. I love going out to restaurants and having air conditioning. Um, I can assure you that adventure, that part quickly wears off when you get to the field. Um, and it's certainly not enough to keep you there. Planting a church among an unreached people group is not a short-term task. It takes years and often decades to see this happen. You will be giving up the best and most profitable years of your life for something that has no worldly glory, only eternal rewards. If you're going to plant a church among an unreached people group, you need to be committed not only to going, but to staying without looking at the calendar. God's timetable is often not our own, and we need to be careful to draw, not to draw lines in the sand when it comes to how long we are willing to give him. I've actually talked to people who've gone to the field and thought, 
okay, this will be a three to five year commitment. Well, when that three to five years comes up, they're already feeling like I've given my time, I don't wanna be here anymore. So um, it's really important to not put a stopwatch as soon as you get there. Another thing I would tell myself is that language learning is really hard. <laughs> when I was in training, one of my teachers told me that usually women learn language faster than men. What he didn't say was that learning language is diff incredibly difficult and it takes several hours a day for years on end to get to a level to where you can understand and speak at a deep worldview level. And in many of the places that, uh, the, where the unreached are, you actually have to learn two languages. The language of the country and the language of the heart, or the heart language of the people that you're wanting to share the gospel with. So taking the gospel to those who haven't heard will lead you also to the very last places. Um, they're last for a reason. Um, the easy ones have already been reached. Um, they're hard to get to, and they're hard to live in. Most are remote, some are hostile, and all are in darkness. To get to Yumbi, we had to fly on a little single prop airplane about 80 miles inland, literally in the middle of the jungle. Um, it was from the closest town, that's where we were able, from the middle of the jungle. So it was pretty far. Before we had an airstrip, we often had to fly to another airstrip and then motor canoe in several hours. So it's a very difficult place to be at um, when you're thinking about like, oh, I, I want to hop, quick hop out of here and go run an errand. That doesn't happen. <laughs> there were no grocery stores, no restaurants, no hospitals, no roads, no telephones, and no internet. I know in this day and age where technology has shrunk the world, it's made everything seem a little bit more accessible. But, and the thought of being so remote seems very foreign, but trust me, there are so many pockets all over the world that do not have the gospel and are just as much out there as Yambi is. Um, the other thing I'd say, it's a spiritual battle. You'll be entering into enemy territory, bringing the light of the gospel where it's been steeped in darkness for centuries. You think of Babel that we heard Chad talk about this morning, since then. All places have some sort of belief system, and for those without the gospel, many are very dark and depraved and in direct contrast to what is good and true and holy. And of course, there's an enemy who would love to discourage, distract, and destroy us in order to keep people from knowing the gospel. Also, to live for years at a time where you are the only light can really take a toll. You must be able to feed yourself from God's word and find your source of strength and identity and significance in him alone without the body of Christ around you. There's also a cost. It'll cost you financially, relationally, and physically. You will be walking away from the comforts of this world. You may be putting yourself and your family in danger to your health and or physical being. You will spend years away from family and friends, miss big events back home, and not that you're not allowed to miss home, but there's a certain dying to self that needs to happen. You may be living in isolation or facing persecution, and you will have to choose to do hard things and then get up the next day and do them again and again and again. I love this following quote by Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary to India. 
She says, if it were possible to pull all the missionaries who have worked in all the world, in all of Christian history, history, it would be seen that missionary work, most of the time, offers little that could be called glamour. What it does offer, as Amy wrote to prospective candidates in later years, is a chance to die. Or, as Winston Churchill put in his challenge during World War II, blood, sweat, and tears. It offers a great deal of plodding and plowing, with now and then a little planting. It is the promise of rejoicing, given to those who go forth weeping, bearing precious seed, that gives heart. So that's the first thing. Sorry if I made that a little bit depressing, but I do want to be very clear with you, and it will be one of the hardest things you ever do. The second thing I want to tell you is that women are needed. Half of the world is made up of women. Most of the countries that still have unreached people groups in them are male-dominated societies where women are seen as second-class citizens. And never would there be an opportunity for a man to talk with face-to-face a woman who is not his wife or his family member. Most other countries, it is even allowed for um, a woman to look a man in the eye without sending mixed signals. I went for years without looking men in the eyes, um, being careful of how I stood, where I sat, how I walked, what I wore, how I spoke, and even how I laughed, trying not to draw attention in a negative way. If I had to be careful as a woman speaking to the men around me in the tribe, how would a man from the outside come in and reach the Yembe women without any issues? (laughs) I think that would have been very hard for them. Only women can sit with other women in birthing houses or be included in on women-only ceremonies. As a woman, you'll be able to see and do things that men will not be able to do simply because you're the same gender. In many places, a woman would never have the chance to hear the gospel if it wasn't for another woman building a relationship with her. What a gift to the gospel that can be. I may not have been standing up teaching the whole church, um, you know, as Brooks did or Tim or Tony, um, but I was able to help with translation. I was able to help with literacy and medicine, and I did teach the women Bible studies and then taught them how to do Bible studies. Myself and the other wives were a very necessary part of the team. Brooks couldn't go in when my friend was giving birth to her baby, and she couldn't sit there, he couldn't sit there with her when that baby died holding her and caring for her. That was something that I could have only done. I would greatly encourage you to read about the lives of the amazing missionary women that came before us. Um, Margaret Payton, Ann Judson, Elizabeth Elliott, Amy Carmichael, just to name a few. Um, These were ordinary, faithful women used by an extraordinary God. Without Ann Judson, there is no Adonai Judson. She kept him alive while he was in jail, hiding the Bible translation under her pillow. Margaret Payton willingly went to a country where not only did John's first wife die and his, her, their child, but he was almost killed as well and chased away by hostile nationals and had to run for his life. Amy Carmichael was raised in a loving home with a promising future and yet left it all to go to a country where she was an outsider and yet through the Lord's grace learned the language and worked in a very difficult situation. Um, herself sick for many years while the Lord used her to save thousands of kids from temple prostitution and many of them coming to know him. Elizabeth Elliot, a widow 
went back to the place where they had killed her husband to share the gospel with them. Read the books, The Three Mrs. Judsons. Um, I recommend these. The Three Mrs. Judsons, A Chance to Die, and Becoming Elizabeth. These will give you glimpses into the lives of these incredible women who felt that their heavenly father was worth their earthly lives. It's amazing to see what God can do through ordinary, faithful women who have a heart to serve him. I love how Elizabeth Elliot approached God's word. It wasn't about, how does this make me feel? It was simply about, is this true? And if it is, what should I do about it? What an example of a faithful, godly woman who sought the truth of God's word above her own desires and comforts. So that's the second thing, women are needed. The third thing I was gonna share with you is get good training. (laughs) One thing, I'm not just saying that because I'm from, like we work with Radius, um, but it is something that we experienced as well. Um, One thing we often hear from people is, I can never do what you did. And I often say, um, yeah, you're right. Today, if you got on a plane and you went over to Papua New Guinea, you couldn't just go into a tribe and do what we did. We had two years of training before we went to the field. And in that time, there was a lot of refining and preparation. And by God's great grace, he gave us the tools that we needed to be used to plant a church among the AMBMB. I couldn't literally imagine doing what we did without training we received. It helped me to grow up in so many areas and wrestle with God on some big things that were really needed before I got to the field. One of the points of contention would um, be my precious son. I think a lot of women deal with that when they think of going to the field. I'm okay, but what about my child? (laughs) And that's hard because they're the most precious things to us. Um, Bo was seven months old when we went to the training. I hadn't been away from him for more than a couple hours his entire life. And then I had to put him in daycare for several hours of a day while I was sitting in classes and doing chores and doing all these things. Um, That was really hard for me. But I had learned that I needed to let go of some idols in my heart. Um, There's things that I really, really needed to surrender to the Lord. And I think that um, in our American churches today, family has become an idol. Um, It's almost become an untouchable, if you will. Um, But I did have to learn how to juggle being a mom and a wife while taking classes and doing chores, like I mentioned, and all the other mom stuff. Um, And I also had to learn that I could make a home anywhere, that I um, didn't have to have this perfect little setup. I can live in a little one-room place. We even lived in a closet for a few months. (laughs) Just hang up a few pictures. It's all good. Um, But having good training should really help you to mature in um, your singleness, in your marriage, and in your parenting. Good training should reveal areas where you need to mature in faithfulness, in trusting in God, in humility, um, in work ethic, social skills, and perseverance. Good training will give you the tools you will need to learn a language, to do a business if you need to, to work with a team, to translate and then teach the Bible and to plant a church. So I always think of um, like pilots in training. Um, we fly all over the place and I think that you know they go through years of training before they're allowed to even practice flying an airplane and flying us all around. Why would we think that merely good intentions, a can-do attitude, a Bible and a plane ticket would be able to give us what we need to plant a church. (laughs) 
Um, I'm not saying that um, there's people who haven't had all the things that Radius offers that have gone. I mean, you look at John Payton and his life and what he's done. But he definitely had training, as Ian mentioned earlier. He was 34 when he went. And so it just takes a lot of preparation and refining. And I think often um, we see people who get this um, feeling like, I want to do this and I want to do this right now. Well, it takes a lot more than that to keep you there and to get you to the end goal of planning a church. Which brings me to my next point. Um, The next thing I would tell myself is get to know your local church. Being a Lone Ranger missionary is dangerous. You need the backing of your local church to help you and to hold you accountable. For those of you that are praying and seeking God about being a cross-cultural church planter, I would greatly encourage you to include your local church and your pastors and your elders in on this. Ask them to shepherd you on this journey and invite them to pray with you and to have them speak into your life. I can't think if um, you went to your pastor that he would be disappointed that you asked him to pray with you about becoming a missionary and wanting him to be a part of that, asking your elders to speak into that. I think that would bring them so much joy and would really greatly encourage them. And it really helps bond you with your church together as a body to take the gospel out there. As a missionary, you're gonna be sent to your, from your church as their ambassador. So this means they have a vested interest in you. Hopefully, you've served at your church and they know you. And your church is not rep- meant to represent a check that they send you money every month but they're to partner with you as you work to plant a church, which will be their sister church. You need them to support you financially and spiritually and emotionally and sometimes physically when needed. And I greatly encourage you to have them be a part of this journey with you. Do you know and do you love your local church? Do you know the older generation? Do you know the younger kids? Do you know what it means to teach women really well? to serve and let them watch you serve, to be discipled and to disciple others. Being a part of a local body lets you see how a church functions biblically so you know what the end goal of planning a church should look like. If you don't love your local church, if you don't know them, how could you want to go and be a part of planning one yourself? After four months of teaching through the Bible to the Yembies, we got to the death, burial, and resurrection. It was on the last day we went all the way through, and we saved that for the final day. And we had our home churches praying for us around the clock. We had um, pictures with the names of each Yembi printed out and sent to them, and they were praying for, praying for them, and I still even see them in their Bibles from time to time. But our home church knows and loves the Yembi church, and some of them have even made a trip to come out and meet them. We couldn't have done what we did without the support of our home church, and they see themselves as a vital and part of planning that sister church in the middle of Papua New Guinea. And they still pray for them regularly. If you go to our church and you flip to the back of the bulletin, you'll see MBMB written on there as part of their weekly prayers. Um, and someday, which how sweet will this will be, <laughs> to have our, our church at home in San Diego standing before the throne with the MBMB church worshiping our God. That is going to be a very amazing, glorious day. So not only will this be the hardest thing you ever do, um, women are needed, get good training, 
um, and get to know your local church. But the last thing I want to leave you with is this will be one of the most rewarding things you ever do. Don't get me wrong, this will still be one of the hardest things you do, but I can honestly say it has been a privilege and an honor that the Lord would take a huge sinner like me to do something that is very clearly all him and all for his glory. I often tell people that I feel like the Lord brought me to Yemi just so I could grow closer to him. He revealed so much sin and pride in my heart, discontentment, idolatry over things of this world, um, comparison. It was very obvious that he was the one to plant that church, to change seeds and to grow his children, or plant seeds, change hearts, and to grow his children. He doesn't have to, but he uses us in our weaknesses to share his words of truth and hope. It doesn't take someone with special gifts to be a missionary, just someone willing to be used by him and willing to do hard things and to trust him for the daily mercies that he gives us to do his will. Someday, when I die, I'll be able to stand before the Lord and offer him back the Yembe Church that he graciously used us to plant. Um, very broken sinners um, to help establish that there in Papua New Guinea. Um, but hear my heart in this, it will have all been worth it. The separation, the sickness, the loss of success in this life, every bit of it will have been worth it. This life is really short. We only get one shot at it. I urge you to live fully for him. And I'm not saying that everyone in this room should be a missionary. Please don't hear my heart in that. Like I I don't think everyone in this room should go (laughs) and be a missionary. But I urge you to ask how you can live for him and serve him faithfully. I love that quote by Jim Elliott. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So the last thing I would probably have told myself, I would have told myself if I could go back right now, had a little time machine, um, is that this task is worth it because he is worthy. So um, right now, I just want to open it up to some Q&A. As I mentioned, that was just going to be a little bit of a short time. But ladies, if you guys, um, and man, if you want to bring um, the microphones around, if you have any questions, feel free to raise your hand. If not, we will end early. But um, yeah, I just wanted to open up to you guys. There's one over this way. Yeah, I would love to know if there were any daily or weekly rhythms that you had to help take care of your mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Mm. Yeah. Um, one, well, I always tell the students down at Radius, there were three things that kept me from getting blue and kind of, if, if you know what I mean, depressed or um, going through a slump or, you know, feeling anxious or anything like that. This is, there are three things that always really helped me. The first one is getting in the word. If you are not grounded in his word and not having a daily digestion of his truth in your life, even now, you will not be prepared for what is to come. So you need that, especially when you're in a place where it's very spiritually dark. So getting in the word, knowing how to feed yourself, having good books, having input, um, listening to messages, whatever, wherever you're at, whatever's available to you. Um, we would have DVDs sent to us from our home churches, and um, we would pass those around to other missionaries on the field. We didn't have internet, um, 
but that was helpful. And then just going through Bible studies, we'd bring over Bible studies to help us. But um, yeah, that was really important, especially before we had a church. I mean, we went for years without having a church there. Once we did, that was sweet, but we still needed to feed ourselves, you know, from our own heart language as well. So, um, but being in the word is huge. Um, exercise, um, that really helps. It helps you physically, and it helps you emotionally, it helps you hormonally. Um, it kind of balances you out. Um, it's an endorphin release. It's all these great, th- anyway, I just, sometimes it was, um, I, I get bored of doing the same things all the time. I would bring DVDs over. Sometimes it was Zumba. <laughs> Sometimes it was, I had a little bench made, so I would do, you know, stair steppers, whatever, <laughs> step class. Um, Sometimes I had a jump rope and I'd put Kesha on and just jump to the beat. (laughs) Um, But that was always really helpful to have that. And then um, the last thing I would say is get out of your house. A lot of times we can um, have a sanctuary. Our home is supposed to be a place where we can rest and have a Sabbath and, um, you know, spend quiet time. It's supposed to be a place where we can think through things and just a place of comfort, but it's not meant to be a jail or our own personal palace. It's meant to be a place where we can rest and recoup for what he has for us. So whenever I I knew I was starting to feel a little bit blue, um, I either hadn't been reading my Bible or I hadn't been exercising or I hadn't been out of my house. And every single time I got out and I got down to the village, um, I would just pray, Lord, you know, Tell me who you want me to talk to today. Bring along somebody. And I guarantee every single time without fail, I always came back home more encouraged. Something about lifting my eyes off of myself, my own little bubble, my own four walls. When you're, when you're isolated, you start, your world becomes you. And so getting out, it becomes about other people. And so that was always very encouraging for me. So You said, love your church home. How can you start a church if you don't first love your church home? How can the church home love them well to help uh, keep them on the field and for them to feel the partnership? If we're to be a partnership with them, um, if they're to be a partnership with us, then how can we help them be, uh, feel that partnership a two-way? Yeah. So as a sending church, how can you love your missionaries well? Yeah. Um, I think there's very practical ways, um, sending packages. Um, I always appreciated when we get little taco seasoning mixes or ranch packets. Um, Fiesta ranch is really yummy. Um, (laughs) Boxes of mac and cheese, if the weevils hadn't gotten to them, were great. Um, batteries or different things. We had people um, that would, we had a partnership group at our church that would care for us. Um, Some of them came actually to help build our house. Um, A couple of them are here today, actually. Um, But yeah, so that was a very sweet practical thing. When we would come home from the field, we have a mission house at our church and it was very helpful to not have to live with other people from the church for months on end um, to have our own, as we were, going through, um, you know, like you're, you go through culture shock where there's reverse culture shock when you're supposed to be coming home and everything. I remember, remember going to Target for the first time on our first furlough and I had a headache for like the whole time because it was so bright and shiny and I didn't know what toothpaste to get because there's all these aisles full of toothpaste. Anyway, so just um, to have a place where you can um, recoup and recover 
from an intense season is helpful. Um, they also had a car for us, so we didn't have to figure out where to live or what car to get or how to do any of that stuff. They would always have our fridge stocked with ice cream and milk and, you know, Captain Crunch or whatever. <laughs> um, so that was very practical things. Like I said, um, sending packages, um, visiting us, and then having um, a place for us to come home to rest to. But they were also praying for us. If we ever had a need, um, that was very helpful. One of the guys is a lawyer, so he helped us do a living trust and figure those things out. And when we had documents, we you know, had to get those things um, nailed down. He was very helpful. So I think that's huge. And then knowing that if there's anything really big, we had a point of contact with the church that they would get the message out to everybody else knowing that um, if we were in trouble or needed prayer or discouraged, that they would be lifting us up before the body of Christ. So those are some pretty practical things. So. Children, and um, just wondering how I could guide them to start appreciating these ideas from eight, nine years old. I would say um, read the missionary biographies. Get them interested. There's these little... Krista, what is the name of those little brown and gold books that... Um, that we would do at Radius, you know, the, the missionary biographies on the little ones. Do you remember the names of those? Okay. So any other? Then and Now by Wyoming. Then and Now by Wyoming. Okay. Um, I couldn't remember the names, so thank you. But, yeah, there's um, books out there that have missionary biographies on them, and they're really well written. They're very easy to read. And I think that really gives people an appetite and an understanding and kind of broadens their vision as to what has gone on and. Um, and to encourage them, like, we still need this today. Um, so that kind of gives them an idea. I think a lot of um, people have heard, you know, as they were younger, they would read missionary biographies, and it just stayed in their heart. I've talked to several people who did that, and they still have a heart, and that's what the Lord has used to plant that seed of going to the nation. So, yeah, it's a great question. Um, who's next? I have heard from several people about, you know, just the longevity of people staying overseas is very difficult. Um, people are coming back sooner. And so um, I'm wondering if you have a recommendation on, um, I guess, how soon is too soon to come back on furlough that makes it more difficult to go back and then stay? Um, you mean, so if somebody's having a discouraging time on the field, if they came home, it would be too hard for them to go back? Um, that is a hard question for sure. Um, I would say you definitely want to help. You, you never make big decisions, big life, dis, di, big life decisions when you're discouraged. Um, so you, you don't doubt what God has revealed to you in times when it was... You don't doubt in the darkness what God revealed to you in the light. So I think... Um, it's okay to encourage them and refresh them and help them, um, but we would, it, if they leave too early, they, I've seen a lot of missionaries come home from the field, and it, when they've left early, um, it's very hard for them, and there's always a lot of guilt associated with that. You don't want that for them. You don't want them to live with that. Um, not always, and there's cases, you know, medical things or things come up where they, they literally can't be there on the field anymore, and that's understandable. But for those who, when things get hard, leave, there's a lot of um, guilt that happens. So there's a point where you want to encourage them, and if they need to come home and um, get counseling or be encouraged or, um, you know, heal from something, 
but you want to point them with the goal of going back. So that, that would be my thing. I think it would probably be case to case as well, um, depending on what the circumstances are. But we, for us, um, the agency that we went with, we had um, every, um, you got three months of furlough time for every year you're on the field. So we would often stay three or four years and come home for nine months or a year. So that was kind of what we did. It was just kind of set in stone. So I don't know if, you know, you want to plant some, like plant that idea or it just depends also on location. Sometimes people have to leave earlier for visas. And so that could be a time that they might need to just step out and it would be a natural time and just stay until then if that's only a few months later. So sorry, that's kind of a long answer, but it's a tricky question in that, but. Yeah, you can talk to me later if you have any other thoughts on that, maybe. <laughs> so, um, yeah. This is kind of a complicated question, so I'd just love to hear your thoughts on it. Probably not an exact answer, but I know there's many unreached places where kind of within the culture, there's a little bit of a degrading of women and devaluing of women. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if in your personal experience or in knowing other women on the mission field, how to live in the tension of both... Um, you know, adapting to that culture um, in ways that is honoring to the people you're trying to serve and be seen in an honoring light, but at the same time trying to be a positive witness and show a new perspective of maybe valuing women that is not normative in that culture. Um, I think um, where true heart change for the good comes is when um, the gospel comes. I think if we went in and thought, you know, we have our own worldview, and in our culture, women are seen as equals and promoted, and um, and sometimes to the detriment of men. Actually, I feel now, um, and so in that sense, that's not un- that's not healthy either. <laughs> but I think we need to be careful to go in and put our culture on somebody else. Um, and I would not recommend doing that. I think what we need to do and what we did was just be patient and, um, you know, be wise in what you put yourself around. We, I adapted myself to their culture, and that's what we train our students to do. Like, you are not going in as American. You are going in, and you're supposed to become an insider. And so that means you take on the culture in, you know, not sinful ways, um, that you could earn the respect to share the gospel with them. So I think, um, like as I, I mentioned, I didn't look men in the eye. And it's still, I mean, believers are a little bit different. Like those kind of good changes. When we had the first EMB marriage where there wasn't premarital relations and they had saved themselves for that, like that was sweet and that was rare. Um, and so, yeah, it was just such a beautiful thing when that happens, but that takes time, a lot of time. So it's not something that that can happen quickly, but definitely being wise, um, going as an insider, being being a learner, and being really humble, and putting yourself um, in situations with wisdom where you can um, just learn from them and then be a part of them. So if that makes sense, yeah. Okay. Could you just speak a little bit into? being a wife on the field and what that looks like in terms of, you talked a little bit about your role among the women, Mm -hmm. um, but even in like supporting your husband and also maintaining um, a stable relationship amongst the stressors. um, Yeah, speak into that on the field and how that looks. 
Yeah, um, so usually what I tell the students is um, our men are supposed to lead us, um, they're supposed to direct us as a married couple. Um, so men lead the home, but women set the temperature of the home. Um, I saw my role as to support and help Brooks while doing all those other things. So while homeschooling, while doing medical, while learning language, while scratch cooking, you know, three days or three times a day, 365 days a week, year. Um, so it definitely takes a lot of balancing. Um, and there are seasons where you can have a great schedule. Um, you get up and you do these things for a while. Um, like, you know, having cultural language acquisition, having, you know, days when I had laundry. I had this whole schedule set up and it was beautiful and I loved it when it worked. But often, it, things don't work quite like we think. Um, there were times when Bo just needed me. He needed me to discipline him or we were going through um, something um, that he just needed me to help him through or um, our coworker needed me. And so my schedule went out the window that day. Um, or we were getting a plane flight in. Our visitors, visitors take a lot of time when they come visit. Um, and you are their sole source of entertainment, provision, all the things. They can't speak the language. They don't know what's going on. So you're, that's what you're doing that day, that season. So um, I think it just depends on um, what season you're in and just being flexible, but also being faithful. And you have to have a plan, but you have to hold it loosely. So you're constantly doing this. I, I usually tell the students, I, I would sit, the most helpful thing for me was to sit down on Sundays and figure out my schedule for the week, figure out what I didn't do well last week, what I, what I need to shore up this week and work on that and then give it to the Lord. <laughs> so, but as a wife, um, I felt... Um, in our marriage, and so usually I would tell people, like, you need to figure out what's best for your marriage. Um, I wanted Brooks to get the language as fast as possible because he was going to be translating and he was going to be teaching. So I was doing everything I could to get him out the door while doing these other things myself. So if that, and I'd still, we only had one child. So if you have more, you know, that makes a difference and, um, you know, the needs of the kids and all that. So that was our personal circumstances. But um, every family needs to kind of figure out what is um, best and most God-honoring for them. So, This may be a whole other breakout session for another day, but just wondering, um, thinking as a mom, uh, what maybe two things would you tell yourself, your old self, like maybe before kids, about being a mom and raising a kid overseas? Um, I would say um, definitely... Um, Teach your kids to love the Lord your God. Um, they, you are out there for that purpose, to serve him and to honor him and to bring much glory to him. But a lot of times, your kids can be pushed to the side while you're trying to do this work over here. But to bring them along, um, how good is our God that we get to be here? Um, how good is it that we get to share the gospel with the Yumbies one day? How, how great it is to be able to pray with my son for them, and so just having that mindset of bringing them in your ministry with you is a big deal, um, and just continuing to grow, um, help them grow in their faith and what it is at each age, and then um, sharing with them, being faithful to share with them the gospel and um, what the Lord Jesus did for them, and making it personal, age appropriate. Um, but the other thing I would say um, is discipline. Um, that sounds—I don't mean to be that 
you know, person, but um, first time obedience was really important to us. If we were in a situation where it was dangerous, I wanted Bo to come to me right away. Bo, now, come back here. I didn't want him to stop and go, why, mom, why? And like keep running the other way while I'm trying to get him, like he's trying to get him to avoid something dangerous. Um, I've seen missionary families where the kids are not doing first-time obedience, and it is a huge hindrance to their ministry um, and can be a hindrance to the gospel if their kids aren't under control. And I don't mean that in a mean way, but really I, I am just being frank with you. <laughs> um, I think it's really, really important. So um, not that we have robot children, but we have children who respect us and listen to us and are are okay with authority. And then one day they will be okay with being under God's authority. Um, So authority is a good thing and it's helpful and what the boundaries we set for them are supposed to um, protect them and help them. And that's what we want our kids to be okay with. So that's why we do first time obedience. So I think that'd be a really important thing, I would say, for sure. So we have about three minutes left and we can take one more question if you guys have some. So a lot of us in the room are going to have teammates, mm-hmm. and I was wondering if you could talk about when your coworkers are also your friends, are also the only people who speak English within a 600-mile radius, and those are the people that you're with for hopefully 15-plus years. The dynamics, all that. You mean how to, um, how to have your kids interact with them as well as the people you're with? No, no, like your adult teammates, being friends with them, also co-workers, also spiritual community, um, conflict solving, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, Yeah, teammates are a huge blessing. We were all very different on our team, and it was such a gift. We could not, we would not be where we are today without Tim and all his... Um, understanding of organization and he'd stay up through the night putting together primers for our literacy classes and printing out cards and all these. He was just amazing. Tony was an amazing um, discipler. He was very um, slow and plodding and um, patient with people and he was really good at mechanics and he'd be able to do that. Brooks was the hard charger. Um, you know, let's do the ne- next thing. And, you know, so those were all great gifts. Obviously, we are humans, and so we're sinners, and conflict comes up. So um, we had to learn to be very careful to keep short accounts. Um, as the men would gather together, and they used to have, Brooks would call it awkward conversation Tuesday, and they would be able to gather and talk about things like, you know, you didn't do this well, or you didn't tie up the boat well, or you, you know, they could just hash those things out. And guys are kind of able to do that without emotions. Women, we don't do that well. And so um, we wouldn't have awkward conversation Tuesday. Um, but we would go to each other um, and, you know, share our hearts and pray with each other and, if there's anything ever really big, we kind of had the policy on our team, especially for kids, you know, if there's conflict and your children are involved, um, mama bear comes out, you know, somebody comes and tells me, hey, your kid did this, and automatically I'm thinking, well, I saw your kid do that last week. Um, so we would have our husbands talk to each other, and then, at, especially because they, they need to know what the, they're supposed to lead our family, and so it's just helpful for us as a team when you work so close and compare and are isolated and you're in it together. And so little things become really big, really fast. So um, I think those were the most helpful things for us. 
Um, yeah, but we were, we're so incredibly thankful for our coworkers. They're amazing and a huge blessing. But it is a lot of work working with sinners um, and revealed a lot of pride in my own heart that I did not even know. I always tell people there's two things. I didn't know how bad of a sinner I was until I got married, and then I went to the mission field. <laughs> so very revealing. But um, thank you guys so much for your time today. Thanks for um, sitting here, and I will be hanging out around after if you have any more questions. But sure appreciate you. And yeah, thanks for coming. <laughs>